All right, how's it going? My name is Matt Bye. Listen to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's the show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Oh, just moved the mic a little bit. Thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoy it. As you might have noticed, if you're a regular, I've had a few weeks off. I did manage to get a Type 2 episode out. But uh, yeah, basically, I went on holiday to France for a few weeks. And I did plan on carrying on with the podcast when I was there. But in the end, in the words of the immortal Paul Calf, I couldn't be asked. Turns out I actually did need a break. But now I'm back, refreshed, in the shed, and with a proper ace episode. That's because my guest this week is surfer. And more to the point, astronaut Christina Cook. You've probably heard of Christina. She's just spent 328 days in space on the International Space Station, setting a new record for the longest space flight completed by a woman. She also, as we discussed at length, spent a downtime photographing the planet's best surf spots and posting them on social media, which is, you know, how I heard of her really and decided to ask her to come on the show. Now, as you might have gathered from that short, pricey, Christina is an absolute legend and I'm going to be honest and say I had a great time with this one firstly because she's absolutely lovely and we got on really well but also because we got right into it covering everything from the philosophical implications of space travel to the difficulty of getting a shot of pipeline on a vehicle traveling at 17,000 miles an hour yeah cover a lot of bases in this one I also did something quite unusual for me which was asked for listener questions. I asked people on Instagram if they wanted to contribute, see another reason to follow me over at We Look Sideways. Now, obviously, I ignored the incredible number of dad jokes I got from men, naturally. They're all men saying stuff like, I screw if the earth is flat. <laughs> yeah, people telling the same shit joke is definitely one of my favorite things about the internet. But there were some good ones. And thanks to Christina for being such a good sport and uh, answering some of those for me. I will be back at the end with the usual housekeeping corner. But in the meantime, here's me and Christina. Enjoy. I'm really interested in the South Pole, Antarctica connection, because that's a little bit of a, an interest of mine, actually, as well. So just on a bit of a geeky level. Really? Um, yeah, just like I really enjoy the history. I've read all the classic sort of, oh, the sh- you know. The Shackleton the story the is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you've read the Shackleton. Uh, that's one of my favorite survival stories and leadership stories of all time. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's actually a group of people from the UK in January, I believe, who are going to try and recreate the the cared is that how you pronounce it james Caird, like the boat voyage basically the voyage of the james cared yeah i would oh wow i'll have to follow that because that's i think the most remarkable and triumphant part of that whole story i i actually yeah um in antarctica they sold these t-shirts that said the voyage of the james cared and um it had a picture of the boat that they took so so another 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 funny coincidence with that is i some friends of mine got married at a pretty famous school in the uk called dulwich college um and i'm pretty sure shackleton went there and they've got the boat so i was at the, wow. i was at this wedding and we went to get some pictures taken and they obviously do it in like you know this public area of this of this college and i was like 
that's the James Cad. Like that's pretty weird. And then there's a plaque and everything. And no way. Yeah, correct. I might have to take a pilgrimage there. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah, no, the whole story's. I mean, the best bit about that story as well is when they get to South Georgia, and they're on the wrong side of the island, and they've got to like climb over the island with like no shoes and all that. You know, it's wild. You forget how close you got to the South Pole as well. I mean, he's like, literally, you know, like under a hundred miles away, wasn't yeah. he? Anyway, listen to us geeking out. I'm in it. Antarctica. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. So you had a surf. That's pretty funny. I did. And I appreciate you again being willing to start a little bit later to accommodate. Yeah, I was able to get out twice today already, actually. It's one of the perks of living so close. Um, we live in Galveston, Texas, which isn't exactly famous for its surf. But the one redeemable quality is that we, you know, normal people can afford to live very close to the water. Right. So... It's really easy to go out for even just a half hour. So is there like a surf scene there in Galveston? Oh, there is. There's a total Texas surf scene. Right. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I thought there would they be. The, there is. Um, and there's a lot of Texas surf surfer pride too, because I think we have to kind of work for it. We appreciate it a lot more. We have a lot of windswell. Um, a lot of Texas surfers, I think, end up becoming really good paddlers because <laughs> We don't, you know, we have really, we don't have long periods well, so we just have to paddle right out into the middle of uh, tons of chop all the time. Uh, and, you know, it, we appreciate it for sure. We take a lot of surf trips too. That's a, a thing, part of the culture here. But there are great days here, believe it or not. So you, you basically get wind swell normally, but then you, you get, was today like a storm swell? And do you actually have ground swell today? Yes. Yes, we did. So it was great. It was small. Um, the The groundswell that we had before the storm was gigantic. It was overhead. It was amazing. It was maybe the biggest I've ever seen it here. Um, but it was just com- very windy. It was, um, you know, not offshore winds at all. And so it was just kind of crazy. But today it really, really cleaned up, but it was small. Um, but definitely a great day for Galveston. Definitely worth paddling out. Sounds really like the UK, to be honest. Well, especially where I live. I mean, I, really? I, yeah, I live on the south coast on the English Channel. And uh, yeah, we just get windswell as well. And we just get these howling southwesterlies that come up the channel. So we have to find like a harbor wall or a marina and like shelter in the, in the, in the corner of that and, and surf there. So I, I recognize what you're saying about a lot of paddling, a lot of wild, wild weather. I mean, I'd say we get two ground swell days a year maybe if we're lucky really yeah because we're pretty far up the channel where i am right so everything has to really be perfect for that it just has to be like a big storm to get up there essentially right wow that's awesome though is there a scene there would you say oh yeah this i mean it sounds really similar as well it's like you know really passionate scene everybody you know you go in anytime there's 50 people in um you know yeah, it's it's a, it's a big scene. Like on Friday, we've got we've actually got offshore winds forecast, like northerly winds, which is really like so unusual. I mean, the shittest, the shittest actual forecast, like you know, eight yeah. eight second period, and but everyone's like, it's offshore. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> everyone's like, it's, yeah. it's offshore. Let's go. Um, I'm actually quarantining because I was in France last week, so I can't I can't go unfortunately, but um. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It sounds exactly like here. Everyone talks about when there's going to be offshore winds. And um, yeah, our standards are just very different from, say, Southern California. 
But you travel a lot, right? When you can. Yes, definitely. Um, one nice thing about being in Texas, this is a good launch point for Central America surf trips, Puerto Rico or Southern California. So we do try to get out um, when we can. So what is next? Where's next? And um, Actually, no trips on the books right now, which is very strange. Uh, for me, I'll be going to Kennedy Space Center actually next month for the launch of the next SpaceX Crew Dragon mission to the space station. So oh, wow. that'll be my next trip. Uh, not surf related, but really looking forward to that. Yeah, so the next crew is going to launch to the space station. Um, right now, it's scheduled for October 23rd. Right. And we're looking to firm that date up for sure in the next week. And hopefully, we'll get some more people off the planet in about a month. So, is that something that you're working on personally, or is that we, we just be there as almost like an observer? This For this case, I actually am working on it, which is really neat. So for about six months after you get back from space, they kind of give you this post-flight period where your main duties are just to, you know, reintegrate, uh, recondition your body and do a lot of outreach travel and, um, you know, just basically getting the word out about your mission and spending your time doing that. Uh, for me, it wasn't actually travel, obviously, but I did a lot of virtual outreach, a lot of students, a lot of companies and sharing the story and the work of NASA. And then six months after that, you sort of get reassigned to your ground job, as we call it. And I was fortunate. My ground job assignment is to work with SpaceX, the company, um, one of the two companies that NASA is working with to get astronauts to and from the space station. And I'm going to be kind of working on the training of those astronauts and firming up how we go forward into kind of nominal operations, getting people to and from the space station and how we make sure they're trained up right and all the international partners that are involved so it's really exciting time wow that sounds yeah so that collaborative collaborative approach for nasa with private companies is that is that quite a new thing it's a new thing to this degree we've partnered with contractors and companies for you know probably ever since we started building spacecraft but the thing that's different about it now is that it's more in the hands of the companies that are our partners. So, for example, SpaceX actually owns their space vehicle that they're using. And we're actually just buying a service from them to get astronauts to and from the space station and to have those astronauts trained and things like that. So we're kind of a customer of SpaceX rather than they are our contractor or our subcontractor. Wow. So that's kind of the the new model. And it's really exciting. And I really like that NASA kind of took this on um, – several years ago with the idea that since we've kind of opened up what we call low earth orbit, which is kind of the environment where the space station orbits earth and the science that we do in that arena, we've opened it up. We've been kind of incubating this potential commercial viability and now we're there. And so we're sort of passing that off while we focus our sites and resources on going deeper into space again, going back to the moon, which we're aiming to do by 2024 and then sort of taking that and building on it and going to Mars so it's a really great approach, um, one, because it just benefits our economy and kind of builds up an entire new industry. And then secondly, because it allows us to sort of focus on our original mission, which is to explore those things that are kind of um, still on the, the very frontiers of, of what we're looking at and where we can gain knowledge. Have NASA always had to kind of make that commercial argument over the years to to to, to like, you know, you, you know, what I mean, like, so obviously this is this is a way of making this this. The, the the things you're talking about presumably affordable and accessible palatable yeah, yeah. so right because like, because one of the things that i just watched I, I mean you probably get asked this every day at the minute but i just watched that challenger thing and one of the one of the really interesting things i found about that was the the fact that 
to get that funded, they almost, it seemed like NASA almost had to make a commercial argument like, you know, well, we will at one point be able to use this for commercial purposes. Is that is that kind of something that you always have to, that the organization's looking to to try and balance with these? Is that, is that a historical thing with it? I'm sure you understand what I'm getting at. I do. Absolutely. I would say that it is always kind of on the minds of um, just the people that are determining what the next goals and missions of NASA are going to be as the landscape sort of shifts from one where we are doing just the very, very earliest exploring that might be justified for other reasons. Like, for example, in the early, early years, we did Mercury, Gemini and Apollo missions. And, you know, no one was making a commercial viability argument back then because the reasons were clear to the public and to, you know, the the government that was providing the funding, obviously, which was it, it really went back to the space race and making sure that we were the preeminent um, per- people sort of on the forefront of technology through this demonstrated space presence. Then when it started to shift away from that, you know, the space race sort of went away and then we had to start to think about, okay, what's next? And so we started looking into how does the space program bring benefits back to Earth, both for scientific reasons and for commercial reasons. So we have things called spinoffs, technology spinoffs, where some of the technology that we uncover and discover and develop just through the course of needing to do the business we do in space actually has all these benefits for back on earth. And then in addition, the science that we can do in the microgravity environment, in the space environment can't be done in any other way. And it has other unique benefits for life on earth. So we started looking at, okay, what, um, you know, how, what are these other reasons to continue to explore space? And I think the next frontier is twofold. When we are going back to the moon, I think that it's an exciting time because I think the reasons are less political in terms of the space race and more philosophical in terms of the things that unite us all as humans. So we're, we're interested in going back to Mars. I think one of the biggest questions of our time is, are we alone? Are we going to find evidence that life exists elsewhere other than earth? And what does that mean for us, you know, philosophically? Um, and then also just recognizing that we can solve huge global problems and take on huge global challenges when we work together and solve them. So it's almost a model for why people should um, be interested in STEM fields and you know science and technology and going into those realms and trusting that science and technology to you know be um, a tool that we can use when we're confronted with big challenges. And one of those, for example, is climate change. Another one of those right now is obviously a pandemic. So I think that those two reasons are gonna kind of carry it forward um, in terms of the frontier um, that we're exploring in deeper space while the commercial viability now is kind of just um, kind of got its own momentum enough to sort of take care of itself. And and that's what we're seeing with the SpaceX and the other commercial partners and all the other startups in space industry right now for even just satellite, not even human spaceflight, but just all the other things that we're utilizing space for. That's really interesting because, yeah, I, I know a little bit about the history of the, of the program over the years. And yeah, you know, like you say, it's almost seems like in the in the in the 60s. It's very much from the military kind of complex that it developed, you know, and as it evolved, you know, it took on a more scientific, obviously that was hugely scientific base, I understand, but in terms of like who could participate and the reasons for doing it became much, much more, as you say, about uh, what what we can learn for, for scientific reasons. And now, as you say, it's interesting to hear that like it's evolved furthermore into this new 
reason to go almost uh, you could say and you use the word philosophical which is really interesting so could you explain what you mean by that a little bit because uh, i mean it might help to put it in the context of the moon project actually which is called artemis right is that is that correct yes that's right the moon mission is called artemis and the idea there is that we're going to go back to the moon and this time instead of just for the purpose of sort of proving we can go and and establishing our preeminence like in the cold war era we're going to go to stay and to do the science that the moon can offer that we can't do on Earth. Um, the moon is kind of like a Rosetta Stone, if you will, about how our entire solar system developed. And um, that in and of itself has its own really incredible scientific merit. Um, a, you know, all the preeminent scientists that look at things like that are very interested in going back to the moon for what it can offer us in a lot of different realms of science. But to me, the even more exciting thing is that the technologies that we'll develop in learning how to have a sustained presence on the moon will actually be applied to going even deeper and going onto Mars. And Mars is really, I think, the most interesting because it has a lot of potential for having had the ingredients for life to start the same as it did in early Earth, where obviously um, life did start and has evolved into what we all have today. And I think that the idea of are we unique for some reason on Earth? Um, you know, were we created in a unique way, or were we just a product of you know the size and randomness of the universe coming together and having all the right ingredients that we came about, just like any other place that happened to have those same ingredients would have eventually had life. Um, I think it's just a really um, amazing, as you say, I've said philosophical question that helps us define our the perspective of what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, what is, um, you know, having a consciousness mean. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say philosophical. For some, I think they might call it a religious, have religious implications. Um, and, but I think that it would do, it, it could potentially be one of the biggest kind of thought revolutions in our time because we would instead of seeing ourselves as potentially unique and wondering if there was anything out there we would almost know for certain that there is other intelligent life out there and the perspective of that defining us then as human and as one i think is just a big shift in how we see ourselves in our place in the universe so if and i think we're really on the edge of being able to answer that or potentially. So for, so yeah, when you say philosophy, you, you mean just, just the biggest questions of all then really. Um, so yeah, when, when, it, when it comes to, it's going to sound like a bit of a probably silly question, but it's never stopped me before. Um, so those questions and those considerations that you, you're talking about, is that, is that, is that actually factored in when these, these, plans being made at the at the top level is at these comes i mean like i say it's a probably a naive question is that is that something that like people are actually putting down as a metric for the success of the mission like to answer this type of question that you're talking about absolutely in fact it's already a metric in the robotic missions that go to mars so there was recently a launch of another mars rover that's currently on its way to mars and one of the big things in talking about the science that that rover is going to do is talking about the different instruments and science gadgets that it has that are going to look for uh, either life or the building blocks of life. So it's definitely something that 
drives a lot of the science requirements of our missions and which also drives the desire to send humans because kind of humans are the ultimate um, reprogrammable science um, that you can have um, on the surface of any planet in terms of uh, looking for and investigating these things. So, you know, I think that while NASA may stop short of talking about different people's reasons for being interested in answering the question about is there life on Mars, I think everyone recognizes that people are interested in that question. Um, you know, why they may be interested is sort of, I think, a, is more something that we each have to answer for ourselves. But I can say that, you know, having been doing a lot of interaction with the public and answering a lot of questions and interviews, I almost always get a question about, do I think there's life outside of Earth? And um, that alone, you know, that kind of anecdotal evidence along with, um, kind of the science rationale behind the search for life is, to me, it's evidence that people are interested in at least thinking about that and recognizing how special it is that we may have an opportunity to answer that question. Well, that, you know, they're all human stories, aren't they, ultimately? You know, when you look at the, look, you look at the arc of the story of space exploration, you know, where the, the stories that stand out are the human stories, you know, whether it's Apollo 13, Challenger, like, you know, landed on the moon initially, Gagarin, that, you know, that there are humans involved. And obviously it's it's underpinned by science, science and discovery. Um, so that's why I, I kind of asked that question really, because it's, it's really fascinating because I don't even know, to be honest, I don't follow this that closely. I'm probably classic sort of you know floating voter that when something significant happens and i will really pay attention and i and i'm genuinely interested in the story but i didn't even know that the moon thing was happening and even when you said that i was like quite excited by that because you know ultimately going back to the moon is 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 a story that everyone's going to get behind isn't it you know especially when you when you frame it in this the way that you've just discussed it and also with the goal to get to mars again that's that's just romantic and human you know whether whatever whatever you think about some of the ethical discussions around all these these conversations like that you know it's it's an attractive story at the end of the day basically so what's i completely agree what what's the time frame then for all this like for the moon and the mars missions the artemis mission going back to the moon is highly underway uh, the goal is to have people walking on the surface of the moon again by 2024. It's a very ambitious goal. And it's a goal that we can really accomplish kind of if everything goes right between now and them. So we're putting everything in place to make sure that happens. There are already companies working on the human landing system for actually landing on the moon. The next launch of the vehicle that will take people to the moon is coming up next year. So we're we're definitely well on the way. I mean, that that is an extremely fast time scale for the, this industry, for human <laughs> spaceflight. That is a nanosecond. But it's really been neat to see how NASA has sort of pivoted and been adaptable to these new, to kind of doing thing, doing business in a new way to make sure that it happens and incorporating private companies, incorporating international partners and, you know, making sure that we can we can do that and do it quickly. And I think one of the reasons is in the past, long and drawn out uh, programs have been kind of at the whim of political will. And sure. so one of the big things to do is to make sure that we get the momentum and we get it going and that we make sure that the political will is there and sustained throughout the mission. And then the Mars side of it would be, kind of be in the next 15 years after that. It is a huge step 
sort of a step function, as we say in the engineering world, between the moon and Mars. It's the technologies are transferable, but there are still huge um, technology problems that we have to figure out for humans to be a part of a Mars mission. So that's more on a kind of longer time scale after the moon missions get established. We're looking at the sustained presence on the moon being around 2028. And so looking at Mars kind of in the late 2030s. Wow. That's amazing. Just try to work out if I'll still be alive. <laughs> Looks like I will. All things going well. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned your your time personal time frame because you came back in February, right? So um, I probably would have covered this in the intro, but um, so you just you were in space for over three hundred days, which, if I'm correct, is the longest um, time in space by a woman, right? Is that correct? That's correct. And then you say so you said you came back and you've had this. You explain you have this period where you then you know rehabilitate and they give you some groundwork. So when are you next likely to go into space? Well, no one knows the answer to those questions. Um, flight assignments are kind of um, given out uh, at a regular pace a few years prior to to flights, and typically the space between um, an astronaut going and uh, reflying is a few years. So I get to spend the next couple of years getting current again in all my trainings and maintaining those training qualifications. And then as well as working on this ground job that I have. And the nice thing about being an astronaut is there's a lot of work that we can do on the ground that can feed back into the human spaceflight program and sort of offer our perspectives, the knowledge that we gained by actually being in microgravity. We There's a ton of jobs and ways to contribute actually on the ground. So it's a good balance between being in flight training or on a flight versus having more of just what people might consider like a nine to five job on the ground. We call it our ground job and contributing in whatever way that we've been assigned to, to human space flight. So hopefully in the next few years. Right. Okay. So it's, yeah. So it's a question of like, it's, it's not something you can answer straight away. You just have to see how it unfolds and what opportunities come along. Exactly. They, they make flight assignments based on, you know, availability, different skill sets. Um, Right now, the flight assignments are to the International Space Station for long-duration missions, but obviously after the Artemis program gets rolling, there will be shorter-duration missions going to the moon. Um, So there's a lot of different um, and variable flight assignments out there kind of on the horizon right now. So would you be eligible for that, do you think? Or is that something you can't answer as well? Yeah, no, as long as I'm, um, you know, a flight assignable astronaut and eligible, once I get back, kind of, like I said, all my training currencies, then... I'll be in the running just like the other astronauts in the astronaut corps. Wow, that's pretty exciting. So that must be uh must be some chat about that then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pos- well, it there's always, you know, people are always excited when our, one of our friends gets assigned to a mission and of course the the Artemis missions being out there in the next few years, it's a it's a really exciting time to be in yeah. the office. Things are changing. And even more exciting, I would say, is we're flying new spaceships. Um the first ever humans went to space on a commercially made and owned vehicle in may and they stayed up until a couple you know last month and then we're sending some more coming up so commissioning new spacecrafts is an exciting thing for nasa and so having a few of those come online all in the same time and boeing spacecraft doing the same thing is going to be coming online soon so there's just a lot going on and um it's a super exciting time and we flew the shuttle for almost 30 years and didn't have a new space vehicle so to see this much happening all at once is is really neat 
So how long did it, does it take you to physically recover from, from a mission like the one you just did? I'm sure, again, it's something you get asked a lot, but it's, you know, it's obviously for, for laymen like myself, it's, it's perennially fascinating to, to understand like the effects of microgravity and, you know, like just how long it takes to actually recover from that really. It's a while. Um, interestingly, so first I'll just answer your question and I'll fill in all the details about it. But our reconditioning program is officially 45 days. And during those 45 days, you spend two hours a day with a physical trainer who's trained in recuperating astronauts. And at first, a lot of that training focuses on your vestibular system and getting your balance back and just being able to kind of have the coordination back that um, your body actually loses when you're in microgravity. So it's really interesting. You may have heard about back in the day, people losing bone mass and muscle mass when they go to space, because you're obviously in microgravity. You don't even have to lift your own, the, your own body weight to move around. You know, I didn't lift my own arm for almost 11 months. And so um, without countermeasures and exercise, we would atrophy muscles and bone in microgravity. And that's what used to happen in the old days. Um, since then they've developed these great countermeasures to make sure that we don't have that happen. So I actually came back stronger, um, in, in a lot of muscle groups than I did before my mission, because we exercise on board the space station for about two hours a day. It includes cardio and resistance training with a special machine. We can't obviously lift weights, but they have resistance training that kind of allows um, us to not have that muscle atrophy. And, um, so it's not so much that you're recovering strength that you've lost, but your vestibular system actually sort of completely stops talking to your brain when you go to microgravity as an adaptation to microgravity. So because, you know, your inner ear is sending these crazy signals that make no sense, your brain stops listening to it. You know, our brains have this plasticity where they can change how they take in signals from the body and, and operate. So when you get back to Earth, you actually have to allow your inner ear to the time to start talking to your brain again. So when you first come back, the only way you can orient to stay balanced is visually. So for example, I would be able to stand up, walk, stand on one leg. But if I were trying to do something like that and then close my eyes, I would immediately topple over. Wow. And it's because there was just no, um, no cognizance of whether or not I started to tip. And when I first got back, I, you know, if you do start sort of start to topple over because you've lost your balance, you don't realize it until your eyes actually visually tell you that you're start you're leaning over. So um, there, were, you know, be times when I'd fall um, against my husband or something, and so um, you you walk, you ha you know, you don't walk for eleven months straight. There's a lot of like small stabilization muscles that that atrophy because they aren't necessarily the muscle groups that we work on our um, our resistance trainer. So that's, that's kind of what you're focused on in the beginning. Um, also cardiovascular wise, even though we do a ton of cardio work on board the space station, our heart just doesn't have to pump against the force of gravity like it does right. on earth. So it actually physically changes and reconditioning your heart to function in one G was kind of the last thing for me to fall into place. Like my cardio getting back to where I was pre-flight was sort of the last piece to fall into place for me. And I didn't really get there until about three months after I got back. I've just realized how dark the room I'm in is. Sorry about it's that. It's very dark. <laughs> That's okay. Look, I just looked at my, <laughs> I mean, it is, it, you know, this time of year, like suddenly it's like seven o'clock in the evening and you're like, oh God, it's dark. 
So yeah, was, I was thinking you're it, it, it probably five or six hours ahead. It wasn't planned. This is this is my little shed that I normally do these things I... in, and uh, and normally. To be honest, I know this is like a complete tangent, but normally I do these. It's been the summer, so I've not got any lights in there. <laughs> I've just been like, <laughs> so you're like, literally. This is the glow of your computer, and that's yeah. It. Like you must be like, wow, what's this guy up to with his uh, crazy <laughs> diminishing lighting? So I just apologize for that in advance. It's exactly what I figured. I know yeah. you're in England, so you're ahead of us. It's yeah, oh, we've just there. had we've just had that like three week. Well, not even that it's been like three days this year it went from like summer bang winter which in the uk yeah. is not not a good not a good look um, <laughs> a good transition yeah exactly so did they give you any um again this is such a punter question but i'm quite enjoying the if that's all right like did they give you any surf specific yeah. rehab to do because oh my goodness that's a great question go ahead yeah sorry well you know because obviously everything you've described like your inner ear vestibular issues don't exactly um lend themselves to surfing do they so that was that something they they kind of you were able to sort of um mitigate during the process oh my goodness what a great question so yes because i have the awesomest physical trainer ever she was very interested in keeping me motivated to you know stay on this regimen because it can be pretty tough to get back some of your balance and you're dizzy a lot and you don't feel good a lot of the time. And so it was all about surfing. Um, she would do drills with me where I would lay on a mat and she would like blow a whistle and I would pop up as if I were on a surfboard because that motion alone is so difficult when you first get back. Any quick motions of the head just can send you completely spinning. Um, and just quick motions in general that require any agility or coordination at all are very difficult. So we did a lot of that. We did a lot of um, the, the, the kind of Superman exercise because one thing that in addition to the lack of vestibular and balance, um, I also had, like I mentioned, certain stability muscles were completely gone. And one of those muscles was actually the stability muscles in my back. So when I first got back to earth, literally within 24 hours, one of the things that surprised me the most was I couldn't lean over a sink to wash my face. You know, when you lean over a sink to, to wash your face, yeah. you obviously have to hold yourself. I could not physically do that. I just fell. I just fell right over. As soon as I tried to lean over, I had to actually put a hand on the sink to help me not fall down. And so you can imagine that's the exact same muscle that you yeah, need to right. use when you're paddling. Um, a surfboard. So I did a lot of back, you know, exercises, core exercises, and my trainer was really interested in helping me do that. And so luckily because of her, I would sort of describe to her the different, I think, skills and muscles that I thought I would need to ramp back up to surf. I first paddled out about six weeks after I got back and it was very difficult. Um, I told my husband that day that my goal was just to put on my wetsuit. I had, a, you know, a three, two full suit that I needed to put on. It was winter. And just the idea of bending down and having to pull the neoprene over my legs and you know how that can be was so daunting to me that I literally was like, if I get my wetsuit on at the truck, I'm good. That's my only goal for the day. And I ended up being able to do that and paddling out and catching waves, which was awesome. But that's where you're at when you get back. You're literally just the idea of bending down and then getting tumbled by a wave. I, I might complete, like as we say in NASA speak, like your gyros are, are tumbled. I, I had to really work at, you know, keeping myself from getting sick or dizzy in the water um, if I would fall. And so it was, it was a challenge, but it, it has come back. 
you know, six months out or after I, I feel back to where I was at. Wow, that's amazing. Six weeks seems quite fast. I was kind of wondering what the time frame would be. But yeah, I guess they've got it down to real fine art, right? Though this this sort of rehab situation with such experience of like the effects of microgravity. What work were you actually doing when you were up there? I mean, that's a big question because I'm sure you're doing a lot. I imagine your days are quite packed. So Very um, packed. Yeah. 12 so what, hour days. What was your yeah. role? What, were you, what was the day-to-day work like? Well, back in the shuttle days, astronauts were more specialized where you had one astronaut that would just do science, one astronaut that would do the spacewalks and say, you know, then you had the commander and pilot running the ship. But nowadays with the International Space Station and long duration missions and really small crews, there's usually only about six people on board the space station at any given time. Everyone has to be able to do everything. So we have to qualify in every single one of those areas, maintenance. So our days are 12 hour days, um, five days a week. Typically, we'll work on the weekends or later if there are um, what we call dynamic operations, like a spacecraft coming to dock or something like that. But it consists of maintenance. So keeping the systems on board the space station, um, you know, upgraded and working. And that includes everything from fixing the toilet to fixing the, you know, highly technologically developed uh, carbon dioxide removal system. And then science. Um, The science is coordinated by a completely dedicated NASA center that works with scientists on the ground to bring research into the space station. And then we are the operators of that science. We get to work with the researchers to carry out the science, install the science, calibrate it, fix it, things like that. So maintenance and science, and then maintenance that extends to the external side of space station we get to do by doing spacewalks. And that's a really rare occurrence on the space station. There's usually only a couple per mission. So maybe one every couple months. My missions had a lot of spacewalks. It was actually a record mission for spacewalks. So we got to do a lot of that. That took up a lot of time. Um, We do outreach. We do public events, live downlink events, which is really fun. Um, And then we also do robotics work. So we actually operate the robotic arm of the space station. When we get cargo vehicles bringing all of our supplies, we actually reach out and grapple them when they kind of rendezvous and sort of park next to station And then they get um, attached to one of our um, docking modules. So that's kind of all the different, the various things that we do up there. But our days are scheduled by five minute increments for those 12 hours. So literally we have a schedule and what we call the red line, which marches across our schedule in real time and tells us exactly what we should be doing at that five minute increment of the day. Wow. Okay. So it's... It's seven days a week. It's 12, 12 hours a day. So how do you fit in the photographing? Sorry, five days a week. Um, so how did you fit in the photographing surf spots then? Because that, that was obviously, you know, something that... I'm Not sure, easy. I'm sure everybody listened to this and was was aware of. And that's obviously how I first became aware of, of, of you and your interest in surfing. Um, and the, the other thing that got me about this was... It, it just must have been technically quite difficult because i mean the thing is shifting isn't it so you know you must you must you must only have a <laughs> sorry not a very scientific description of the speed of the international space station but um yeah you know like that must have actually been a lot of work to, to do that it was a labor of love but it was one of the most enjoyable things i did on board the space station i don't think surviving 11 months in a tin can i don't think it would have been survivable without a hobby that you felt really passionate about and for me that hobby was photographing surf spots i didn't know it was going to be something that would turn into such a passion but when i saw the first clear swell on 
a place that I knew was a legit surf spot on the earth, I knew that I was going to be completely all in on this project because I had never in my life seen pictures from kind of that satellite view that showed with the sun glint, the swell coming in and wrapping around and the shadowing of an island and how it interacts with the reef. Um, It was mind blowing. And so Yes, it was a lot of work. I had a lot of alarms. We uh, we work off of a tablet with all of our procedures. And every single day, it would in the morning, I would check which surf spots we were flying over that day. I would set a bunch of alarms. And if I wasn't in the middle of something, when one of my alarms went off, I would be able to uh, run to the window and grab the camera and take a picture. Um, we, we fly at 17,500 miles per hour, which means that for any given site... We're only directly over it for taking good close-up shots for maybe 20, 30 seconds as we pass over. It's very fast, and you have to actually sight these places. It's not clear. There's no laser finder that helps you see these places. You're just looking down on a planet trying to find an island that looks familiar that you know from a map. And we do have software that tells us where we're flying over. So I know where it, you know, a certain island should be. So I'll just sort of start looking in a direction or watching up of a, up a coastline and picking out predominant features and trying to spot these surf sites or just photographing down a coastline, like, you know, uh, rapid speed. But there were times, um, when I was really interested in following a certain place on the championship tour of, um, the world surf league, where I would actually, if I wanted to get a picture out of our best windows on board the space station, which were actually in the Russian side of the space station, I would set an alarm no matter what time of day it was. I I don't know how many times I went to the Russian segment at two in the morning with an 800 millimeter lens trying to get a picture of pipeline. And, you know, it was just, it, it was a project that I just was absolutely in love with. And it, it brought me so much joy, connect, you know, connects me with my friends who are surfers and, having watched all of the competitions up there, it really was neat to know, like there were instances where I knew that the picture I took was during the final heat of the competition, for example. And that was just a really neat feeling for me. So it was very motivating. It was a lot of work though. I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, cause I think the thing that was really watching it from the outside was you could see like how into, how into it you are. And also like, I, like as a surfer, I mean, you know, like you're, you're obviously like a, a surf geek, like we all are. And then the other thing is as well, like everybody who's into surfing just loves looking at spots, don't they? And loves getting a map out. And and it, and it's it's not easy. I mean, I was just in France surfing, and I was looking at, you know, I was trying to find spots on on Google Earth or whatever. And it's it's not even when you it's not moving at seventeen thousand miles an hour. If that's if that was the correct speed that you said it's not it's not that easy so i i just i i, I thought it was great because i thought you know that that is a mission if you'll pardon the pun like that that is definitely something that you would take on and be well i mean you were disciplined setting alarms to do that and to to do it for that yeah i mean it's 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 no small thing isn't it which i think is what really came across and which is why obviously like really sort of captured the imagination didn't it of people who were into surfing because i think they really recognized that you know and how 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 did nasa like it did they because you know they must have like had great pr value didn't it so they must have liked that part of it but were they were they were they amenable to it 
Absolutely. I think that, you know, they, for a lot of reasons, I think that they saw that passion come through. So they recognized that to have that mission within a mission that's kind of personally motivated is so important for keeping your morale, your spirits up, and for kind of having something that allows you to constantly recognize the unique and special place that you're in and to have something that makes you not focus on when is this going to be over, but I want this to last as long as possible. And that's what that gave me. I wanted to be on board for as long as possible to get as many of those goal sites, you know, the sites that I had the goal to take a picture of as I could. And so, you know, I think people recognize that. And also, like you said, it's a way to bring in an audience that might not even necessarily know we have a space station going. I hope that there were people that saw that picture and said, there's people in space right now. Oh, how long are they in space? Why are they in space? What are we doing? Oh, that's actually really neat. Um, and maybe people that didn't necessarily realize before the scientific value of the space station at least recognize it as a platform that we can look at our Earth from and see things from a unique vantage point. You know, I learned things about how the, the you know, even oceanography, how the swell works, um, geography, islands from the perspective that I had. And to be able to pass that along, and I think people hopefully saw the value in that. And yes, NASA definitely recognized that. And um, they were fully supportive of me doing posts. And I even got to do some in-flight events with the World uh, with Surf League. So that was great. And um, it was fun well, to see that they supported it. Well, you did a chat with Kelly, didn't you? Which must have been... Yeah, that was really exciting. I was happy. I was very happy to be able to do that. And you, you had uh, you had a little chat with Callie, didn't you, as well? Which was which must have been quite nice, as as somebody who's like obviously super into it. But you just you just kind of hinted at the the psychological difficulties of, of of being up there for so long, and you also suggested that that's something. And again, it's a very obvious thing to say, but that NASA are very mindful of, and that and that they're trying to help you cope with. So, um, what what are those psychological kind of issues that you that you face when you're up there because you know it is as you even use the words tin can didn't you you know like it's it's it is ultimate fundamentally a very unusual situation to be in so and i'm sure as as with the with with the rehab as we as i said i'm sure it's you know 60 years of experience of dealing with this but personally um what issues did you have to kind of cope with up there you know it's such a great question. And it actually even was important in the time that I spent at the South Pole. I, I lived there for a year as well. And I think the biggest thing that you have to be aware of, well, two things I'll say. One is sensor, what I call sensory underload. When we do not see or hear or smell anything new for a long time, I think it affects how our brains work. And I experienced this at the South Pole. I experienced it on my mission on the space station. And I think that your brain just sort of either rises to the occasion of the level of sensory imports that it's getting or sort of almost even slows down to the level that it's given. And I think recognizing that and fighting it by constantly trying to bring new things into your environment to sort of counteract the lack of sensory um, in, inputs that you have when you live on board the space station is really important to stay fresh, keep your mind fresh. So an example of that is, you know, not only did I see the same 
module walls and the same equipment around me physically for so long, never felt the wind, never smelled, you know, the smell of the outdoors for that long. Maybe most importantly, I only interacted with 11 other humans for 11 months straight. I never processed a new face. I never talked to a new person. I never made small talk. And so I think that's one of the big things that I had to incorporate during my reconditioning and my reintegration. Um, I found that I was really good and okay with talking to people that I knew very well or that I only interacted with on kind of a technical professional level because I had been doing that. But interacting with people that I didn't know well, I was very bad at when I got back. When we first, my husband and I went out to a restaurant before kind of the whole stay at home period started a couple weeks after I got back. And I found that I was unable to even just chat with the waiter and order food. I just, I felt very, um, uh, conscious of everything I said, how I was acting in a way that I never had felt before. Um, I felt like my voice was just on display and um, I was second guessing everything that came out of my mouth because I just hadn't processed new new humans and interacting with them in a while. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing I think is the trick of reminding yourself to not focus on when is this going to be over and having a countdown or when when do I get to go home? And instead, always, if you have that thought, replace it with a thought of what's something unique that I'm going to miss when I leave. And I use that at the South Pole. I use that on board the space station. I've used that during quarantine. And I think about what what are the things I'm going to look back and miss and just focus so much on those things and just don't let the other things creep in. I never allowed myself to think about, man, I sure do wish I could go get a latte right now or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. It just wasn't, wasn't. Um, important it wasn't going to serve me so yeah that's another one i mean the the, uh the quarantine and you know analogies is an obvious one isn't it really um so can you did you were you forewarned about that or were those experiences that you personally understood as it happened and 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 i guess the second part to that question is you've already mentioned one but can you you know, for the sensory underload thing that you that you talked about, is there, is, is are there techniques you can use to kind of um, ensure that that doesn't actually become an issue when you're up there? You know, I think they do. NASA does pay a lot of attention to the long duration aspects, the psychological aspects, and one thing that they do is they teach us something called expeditionary behavior, and it's an entire part of our training flow, learning how to live with other people in a group setting, how to how to um, focus on teamwork, leadership, followership, communication, self-care, team care, and we actually talk about these skills in a way that kind of creates a common language between you and your crewmates. And I would say that that's the main way that that NASA provides for us to cope with these things because everyone is affected differently and everyone has their own coping strategies. But if you have that baseline ability to get along with your teammates, to rely on them, it gives you the, um, the foundation to then come up with the coping strategies or countermeasures that work best for you. Sure. And so that's, that's kind of how they handle that. They're not going to, um, which I think is good because everyone's unique response to the environment is, is just that unique. And so, um, they recognize there's not a one size fits all set of things that they want to tell you, you would have to do, but 
that you'll discover those things if you're in a good place with your team um, from that perspective. So expeditionary behavior skills is a big NASA thing. Um, and for me, a lot of that um, was developed in some of my previous experience. And that's another way NASA does it is they pick people that have already proven to be adaptable to new, different, and potentially uncomfortable situations for long periods of time. If you look at the astronaut corps, almost everyone has some experience like that in their past where they kind of have proven that they can be successful even in adverse situations, that they can kind of thrive even off of off of those challenges. So luckily that's, we kind of all come into it with that. That's a really fascinating thing that you just said about giving people the baseline of the collective experience of the organization but then saying but you will have your own unique experience because i think that's one of the one of the things i've always found most fascinating about the stories of astronauts and people that have been into space and is it the overview effect is like the famous thing you know like and and when you and you know obviously there's loads of books and studies about people that have been to the moon and the and the different ways that they've reacted to that um and they're all really different are they you know some and that's what's that's what's really really fascinating about it like that experience which is obviously so profound affects people in profound ways but very unique ways is that is that something that you've experienced from your own experience of of going to space and um, with other people is that something that you guys would discuss like those those effects of of like you know the personal effect that's had on you definitely i think that's one of the big things that we do talk about and you know, I think one of the fundamental differences that in how people react to it or what they get out of it or the challenges they experience is kind of, um, a lot of it goes back to whether they're an introvert or an extrovert, you know, what are they missing about the earth? I'm an introvert. So I liked the fact that I was only surrounded by the people I knew really well. And, um, I didn't necessarily miss big gatherings or have FOMO that I was missing out on things like that. But for other people, that was a big thing that they missed out on. Um, And they constantly needed social interaction to kind of feed that hole that they may have felt. But we did, um, you know, anytime more than one of us was in the cupola, the cupola is the big bay window that sort of looks down on onto the earth where we do a lot of our photography and Every time you were in there with someone else, all we could just talk about was how amazing it was, what it felt like for us, maybe the first time we saw our home from space where we grew up or something like that, or the first time we saw the Northern Lights, the Aurora on the planet from above. You almost always were talking about something unique someone saw recently, what it made them feel. And um, and then there's those tough times, you know, where... You may have made a big mistake doing a procedure for someone. You feel like you've let down the team and you're talking about how, hey, I had that same thing happen a few weeks ago and, you know, I was uh, fighting back tears uh, on the treadmill, you know. Yeah. And so there's we definitely have each other's backs in more than just work related, but in in coping with kind of what we're all going through but it like you say is all different in terms of how we experience it yeah i mean without stating the obvious you know you've 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 been through a profound experience haven't you which very few people are ever gonna get to experience um do you consider the philosophical implications of that personally you know or, or did you do you draw any philosophical conclusions personally from the from that experience i think the big one is just 
as as cliche as it may sound, recognizing that we really are all a human family. There's more, so much more that is alike about every person on the earth than is different. And also something that was profound for me was seeing how diverse the the geography of the earth is and realizing that that oftentimes is the only thing that changed the different cultures and formed the different cultures. Seeing, for example, the Middle East from above, it is nothing but a desert for the most part. And yet there are, you know, the most successful and amazing cultures that developed in what may from above look like an area without the same resources as say somewhere where I'm from. And so recognizing that the things that actually we might see as the huge differences between us are one, oftentimes just a a product of where we happen to have grown up on the planet and two are so much smaller compared to the fact that we do all survive on this planet. Um, The fact that the atmosphere of the planet is so, so tiny compared to the size of it and so fragile and yet we all depend on the, 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 you know, perfect set of ingredients that that atmosphere provides to live off of. And so I think that is one of the big profound things. Um, seeing the earth as a planet against the backdrop of the universe is kind of a mental image that I will never forget. Um, recognizing that there's just so much more out there. It's kind of like the first time you travel abroad and the new perspective that you gain when you realize that everything's different in other countries or a lot of things are different. Suddenly you stop seeing your own experience as absolute and you start to see where it fits in on the spectrum of all experiences and all ways of being. And so I now see earth and our planet where it exists on the spectrum of all different planets and how they could be as opposed to just absolute earth, our planet. And I think that's kind of one of the big differences in terms of how I feel philosophically before and after my flight. I mean, that's, that sounds pretty huge. I mean, how, how, how did that make you feel? (laughs) Um, it's, I, I think about it a lot. I, um, I try to kind of do something with that by talking about it with people and sharing it as much as I can. I think one of the best parts about being an astronaut is that one of the kind of unspoken parts of our job and our profession, by virtue of the things that we were talking about earlier, where we exist at NASA only because there's a collective will and desire to send people to explore, one of our jobs is to carry everyone's dreams with us and to bring back the perspective and the things that we see to in, to inform the same people that want to explore just as much as we do, but we're the people that are honored and privileged enough to be doing it. And so um, just sharing as much as I can. Um, you know, day to day, how it manifests itself is when I travel, I can actually picture sort of the path that I'm tracing out on the planet, what it would look like from above. So for example, I did a road trip to... Southern California a few months ago, and I could picture the deserts we were driving through in New Mexico, and I could just kind of see us tracing our little path along the earth um, on that planetary scale instead of just watching, you know, the highway go by. And it it was just an amazing feeling, um, even just being out surfing in the San Diego area 
and recognizing what that coastline looks from like from space and that I was you know, one little dot on that planetary scale is, is it's been a really neat way that my flight has been able to kind of continue to inform and permeate my life since I've been back. So you mentioned the South Pole and, um, you know, I've, I've obviously looked at your CV and stuff and it, it looks like your career has been driven by two, these two sort of interests and passions, really. Obviously, like the, the work that you do, but these two, you know, space in the South Pole, like you've, you've basically dedicated your life to those two zones, if you like. Was that, was that how it was? Were you fascinated in those two um, things from a young age? Definitely. Um, but I would say that I see them as one in the same, which, cause I've done a lot of kind of retrospective looking at my path and the kind of theme that I see running through everything is science and exploration on the frontiers. So when I was in middle school, I literally had pictures of space, the space shuttle and maps of Antarctica up on my bedroom walls. I, those were the things that I thought were cool. Those were the pictures I cut out of magazines and put up on my walls. Those were the posters I bought in gift shops, things like that. And so it has been a passion from the time I was young, but I think it's because both things spoke to me in the sense of doing big things to, to go places and be able to see things and study things that you can't do otherwise. And interestingly, I, I also think that informs a lot of my hobbies one of the reasons I love surfing is because of the beauty that you get when you're out there on a glassy day and the, the lighting is just right and it feels otherworldly. And you can't get that from the shore and you can't get that from swimming in the waves. You can only get that if you're paddled out, you know, um, in the lineup. And it's also why I love rock climbing is because you can get to places and have these vistas that you literally cannot see unless you're rock climbing to that spot. And um, so something intriguing about going the distance to achieve something that otherwise you can't do. The science that we can do at the polar regions of the earth is unique. The science we do in space is unique. And um, even when I had less far out jobs in sort of doing this field work in the, the Arctic, I was doing engineering work on NASA missions of science gadgets that fly on planetary probes and earth orbiting satellites. And so even that's along in the same veins. Um, I wasn't doing the traveling myself, but the whole idea was studying things in far off places. So that's kind of how I look back at the theme. And I'm just lucky enough that I got to do the things that were on the, you know, on the posters on my wall from when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. We, we, we pretty methodical about the way you approached it. Did you, was it was that the end was that the end goal or did you just follow your interests? It was always the end goal, but I was actually the opposite of methodical. Um, I had a lot of people raise their eyebrows with some of the career decisions that I made, but it's exactly what you said. I was more about following my passions. That wasn't always how I was going to do it, though. I actually there's a very distinct story about this. When I was in middle school, I went to space camp. I'm not sure in, in England if you're familiar with that, but there's this kind of famous camp, summer camp that you can do called Space Camp. There's a movie about it. I remember and, the film. Um, I remember the film, A Child of the yeah. 80s. I remember it. Yeah. Yes. Le- Leah so Thompson. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was in space camp. I was Leah Thompson. And, um, and there was actually a class on how to become an astronaut. And because, of course, it was just me and a bunch of other kids that want to be an astronaut, astronauts. And um, 
you know, literally the instructor got up there with the whiteboard and wrote a list of, of the things that you had to do to become an astronaut. And I looked around and everyone's writing everything down, scribbling on their pe- papers. And I, one, thought, well, geez, I'm definitely never going to become an astronaut because even just in this one room, everyone wants to become an astronaut and they're all really smart and great. So it'll never happen to me, for me. But by golly, if it happens, it's not going to be because I filled out that checklist in my life. It's going to be because... I did what I loved, did what I was good at and passionate about, contributed as much as I could to the world through those things and by by doing that, and then look back and thought, does that collective, collective experience and skill set allow me to say to someone that I think I could be a good astronaut? I think I could contribute to this program. Because for me, it wasn't about getting myself into space. It was about the fact that I loved the space program so much that I would only apply if I had, by my own passions and skills, become someone that I could make the case that was worthy and would actually keep contributing in that way. So that's really how it happened. In 2012, there was a call for astronauts. It happens every couple of years. And I looked back and I said, I'm going to apply. It was the first year I applied. And um, the same thing happened in 2009. There was a call for applications. And at the time, I just didn't think I was there. There was some unfinished business in my career. I had never launched any of my instruments that I designed as an engineer into space yet. I wanted to do that. And um, by 2012, I looked back and I thought, yeah, I think I'll do that. But uh, definitely a lot of people who questioned me when I quit my perfectly good first engineering job at NASA two years out of college and went and worked at the South Pole. But it turned out that's the stuff they wanted to hear about in my astronaut interviews. So it worked right. out. Well, because they just thought it was a bad career decision, ultimately. Yeah, they just thought it was crazy. They thought it was, you know, chasing down a dream and, you know, just your standard uh, people that might be concerned that you are giving up stability and, um, and something like that for uh, something that's a little bit less sure in terms of career path. Yeah. So, again, at the risk of asking a really silly question, uh, what's Antarctica like? <laughs> it's cold. Um, I, my first season in Antarctica was actually wintering over, so staying for a whole year at the South Pole. Wow. So I kind of went feet first. And, um, again, back to that questionable decision making. But um, it turned out to be one of the, the most defining thing I could have ever done. So at the South Pole Station, the year that I was there, they were building a second station and transitioning away from what had been the station. So it was actually a pretty big winter. There were 86 people. But tip, and um, when I say 86 people, that sounds like such a set number. And the reason is it was. So the station at the South Pole actually completely shuts down for eight months. No planes in or out, no mail, no new food, no new people for eight months. It's actually physically too cold to land aircraft there safely, regularly. So um, it becomes a community. And um, it's actually a premier site for astronomy. There are a lot of telescopes there. So that's the main science that's being done at the South Pole. I also have worked on a station on the Antarctic Peninsula called Palmer Station, which is on the coast and does a lot more marine biology and things like that. But it also has some physical sciences and atmospheric sciences that go on, which is where I was involved or instrumentation and things like that. So um, it's variable depending on the station that you're working at, but it's an awesome group of people, a lot of like-minded hard workers and a regimented operational environment, but 
also attracting a lot of people with, you know, tattoos that say not who, all who wander are lost. So, yeah. you know, kind of that hip, <laughs> hippie military kind of a thing. Yeah, I actually just watched, randomly enough, an Anthony Bourdain show about it. Do you know Anthony Bourdain? Did, uh, anyway, he, 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 he did a documentary about going to visit one of the bases. And yeah, it was really fascinating because it, it used the word season and it, it definitely had that, seemed to have that like kind of seasonal uh, mindset about it, which I think anyone can recognize. You know, once you get into that lifestyle, whatever that season might be, whether it's living in the mountains, climbing or going to an Antarctic base, you know, it seemed like it was something that really drew people back year upon year, like the camaraderie, the uniqueness of the environment. Was that, was that something that you found? Absolutely. You nailed it. It was, it was exactly that. It was people that loved working hard with other like-minded people that had that kind of outlook, that seasonal outlook. You know, a lot of people would work in one season in Antarctica and then go back and um, not work for, say, six months and ski or rock climb or hike or float rivers, um, you know, western part of the state. A lot of people would trade off seasons between, say, working in a national park and being in the Antarctic. And so it is. It's a lot of those people that just love the... um, kind of the community that develops where, you know, you share meals, you eat three meals a day with the same people that you work with. And just to get to know people on that level, to swap stories and, um, you know, experiences and learn about all the different cool things that people are doing was highly valued in, in that community. And, and also just the personal freedom aspect of it. People talked a lot about how they were taking their retirement early and, you know, they might work later, but right now they were interested in, building up experiences and also contributing to something, you know, we were doing things that we believed in working in field work at a science base is something you can also feel good about. So it was a great group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what two amazing environments to experience. So I mentioned this before, I don't do this that often, but I did ask for some listener questions. Um, so are you up for answering a few of those? Because I just thought, you know, it's such a unique guest for the show to have an astronaut on. And, and Let's I, I, do it. I had a feeling, you know, like I said, I, I never really do this. I do it every now and again, but um, there's some good ones. So I some... should have scoped your, your Instagram and I'd know all the questions you were going to ask. I did tag you in actually, but I gathered you're probably a bit busy. But um, uh, like, okay, so what this one when you've seen the planet from space how did it change your perspective i think we actually covered um this is this is this is along the same lines is it possible to be an astronaut and remain religious absolutely there are um every diverse religious opinion you can imagine is represented in the astronaut corps there are people that have there are former astronauts that have even written books about how the experience um deepened their religious beliefs. So I would say that the same way that people see, you know, look through, look at earth through the lens of their faith is also the case when you fly in space. Yeah. I mean, I guess it comes down to that thing we were talking about earlier, doesn't it? You know, ultimately it's a personal experience and a a lens through which to, to try and understand life generally. So yeah, I think, I think it's it's fairly obvious, isn't it? That if, that it might even enhance that belief if, if that's something that you, that you already have exactly um, okay if you could land on any planet what would it be for me 
I would go to Mars. Well, first of all, I've had this question before in the form of what's your favorite planet? It turns out it's the wrong <laughs> answer to not say Earth, I found out. So say Earth first, then say where you would go. I think um, in 2020, so... no one's going to mind that, really. <laughs> yeah, good point. That Maybe that's changed. Yeah. Um, I would say Mars because I am one of the people that thinks that the search for life and answering the question of are we alone is so important. And I think Mars is the most likely candidate place where we could answer that. Now, if I were going to go somewhere else, it would actually be a moon of Jupiter. There's some moons that also may harbor uh, either past or present life forms. Um, So places in our solar system, I would say. This one's actually from a friend of mine who's a real, he's very, very, very geeky um, about all things space. So he says, can you notice the vectoring during orbit adjustment when you're inside the space station? Oh, that is, I love geeky questions. And so we do things called reboots where we actually have to fire the engines of the space station to uh, increase the height of the orbit because of the slight bit of atmosphere that is where we are at our um, orbital height of 250 miles ish does cause drag. And so we do reboost. And when we reboost, we know exactly when it's going to happen down to the second. And what you can do is you can place something and have it float right in front of you and be perfectly still right before the reboost starts. You can't feel it. You don't feel the acceleration. It's way too small of an acceleration, but you can watch things as the space station accelerates around this thing that you've put floating in the middle of the room. It will suddenly, it will appear to move backwards on its own. But really wow. what's happening is the space station is accelerating around it. We took videos of this a couple times and I have video of things that were just sort of sitting there balanced and then would suddenly on their own appear to move backwards. Wow. There you go, Nathan. I reckon that's made Nathan's day. Um I think you've definitely had this one before because I've I've read something that where you've been asked it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, when going into space, what was your biggest fear? Oh, what did I say? Um, <laughs> um, I, th- I think you said you were you're almost so well trained that it yeah it, it's it's okay good you know it's it's not really something that's on on the table almost hundred percent that is what I would say so. We really, I don't experience much fear in space. I don't have any memories of being scared. I have memories of thinking about the different things that could happen and what I would do, what my actions would be. And But really, it is true that we're so well-trained and fear doesn't really serve you. I would just try to sort of channel it into focus on the task at hand. Um, the, all that said, I think the scariest part is coming home if I had to land in the water. Um, that just doesn't sound fun to me. Bobbing no. around in the ocean in a potentially leaky spacecraft. Nah. nah. Which, of course, means that's at the very end of the mission. So, you you know, you kind of have to put it out of your mind the whole time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Sure. Um, this one's from a friend of mine who edits the Surf magazine. If we could terraform Mars, would the oceans be big enough for proper swell? <laughs> they would. They would. Um they would be very much big enough. And there are huge storms on Mars with a lot of wind. So I bet there would be, um, I bet there would be some potential for pretty good swell. Martian wind swell. Yeah. Um, the Martian atmosphere is about 1% as thick as ours, but I think you could still get that wind swell. Sounds like where I surf, to be honest. 
Um, <laughs> we we kind of covered this one as well, but um, I've got a couple more, so we're, we're nearly done. Um, any examples of how you frame challenges, adversity to help you overcome it? Now, you did give a, an amazing example earlier um, by talking about how you focused on the things that you were enjoying about the experience rather than worrying when it was going to end, which I think is basically an answer to this question. But um, a- anything else that maybe comes to mind to answer that one? Definitely. Um, a couple. One being the magnitude of a challenge. When I first started training to be an astronaut, I called it learn five professions in two years training. where I had to learn how to pilot high-performance aircraft. I had to learn how to operate a robotic arm. I had to learn how to speak the Russian language. I had to learn how to be an engineer of the space station. And a lot of these things were brand new to me since I didn't follow that checklist of how to be an astronaut. I had no idea how to fly anything about aviation at that point. And um, it just seemed like an insurmountable challenge. I couldn't believe that I was going to have to face it every single day that as soon as one tsunami of training and, and exams were behind me, the next wave would be right there. Um, and I learned a technique of just taking things in really small chunks and recognizing the patience that was required to recognize that I would be there one day. And maybe this is how someone might feel at the beginning of medical school or the beginning of any kind of school that you're taking on, or maybe it's how you might feel taking on a new hobby, um, or embarking on, you know, starting a company. But I think reckon, having the patience to recognize that you can find a pace of hard work that's sustainable. And that one thing I would tell myself is the next two years are going to go by no matter what. It's still going to take two years for them to go by. The only question is whether or not I'm going to be a qualified astronaut or not at the end of those two years. And so just recognizing that it, all in time, it will, it will happen. Another thing was overcoming intimidating situations, um, situations that I never thought I could um, be the one that was rising to this technical, physical challenge. And that really came in the form of learning how to spacewalk. Spacewalking is the biggest intellectual um, and physical challenge that we do. For six hours straight, you work so hard in a spacesuit, a spacesuit that resists your every single movement. It's the metabolic equivalent of running a marathon. And you have to do it all while you're focused on the technical aspects of the tools and equipment that you're working with, as well as the emergency scenarios that you have to have down pat if your suit, which is actually just a spacecraft that's shaped like your body, um, were to fail in some way. So all that's going on, and it's very intimidating. And we tr- we train for spacewalks in a giant pool that's 40 feet deep, 100 feet by 200 feet has an entire mock-up of the space station inside and hundreds of people are involved every time we do one of these training runs. So, so many eyes are on you. And that was all new to me when I first started. And, um, I, I was constantly worried about the fact that it was this kind of well-known stereotype that women were not as good in the suit. It's an, like I mentioned, it's extremely physically challenging. Um, this is the whole reason why astronauts lift weights and work out all the time. And, um, how I counteracted that was by learning about this thing called stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is something that people who um, are sometimes in these situations can experience that actually negatively affects their performance because they are thinking about other people's stereotypes of them and kind of almost, it becomes this like self-fulfilling prophecy because by, by worrying about that and almost envisioning 
the images of people that you think might watching be watching you underperform or fail, you actually are more likely to underperform. And so my that, uh that's what that's actually called. That that, that Yeah, it's called stereotype threat. I feel I feel seen. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so that's so true. And um so my coping strategy for that wasn't to pep talk myself, not to say, Christina, you're awesome, you're gonna do great today. But I would constantly replace the negative thoughts that I would have over and over again in my head. I would put it on repeat that the people around me thought I was awesome. So I would actually imagine the people in the control room watching me saying, oh, she's so good at this. Watch what she's going to do right now. Look how she's going to overcome this issue. And and just by replacing that stereotype threat with a positive image, it really helped me get through those extremely intimidating situations. That's a really long answer to your question. Um, but those are two things that really helped me a lot in, in my training and in my mission. That That's really fascinating. I mean, I have that when I'm surfing, to be honest. Oh, like, absolutely. I, you know, like, and, and, and what's really, what's really, what I've really noticed, I'm, I'm not a good surfer. Like I'm, you know, like, but average surfer, you know, I can surf, but I'm not, I'm by no means, I'm not, you know, I'm not the best guy in the lineup. Let's put it that way. And, um, and I really, really, if it's crowded lineup, and I don't get the first wave, then I'm fucked basically. Because then, because then I'm like, all right, everyone's, you know, I just have that psychological game. But interestingly, if, if I get a wave and somebody sees it, then it's a different thing. It's so bizarre, and like I can tell I'm doing it. Like when I was in France, I was actually surfing on my own, and which is never, it's actually the first time I've ever had that in my life. I, Got got to a beach. There was no one out. It was decent. It was head high. It was a right. I was like, "Why is there no one here? Like this is weird." So I thought there must be rocks. Anyway, whatever. I paddled out, and it was just, a, <laughs> it was just, it was just a perfectly good little reef that there was no one on. But there's people on the beach, and I and I was doing it then. I was basically like, I was basically like surfing, and and I found myself sort of going like having the same psychological thing it is really weird and it's a subconscious thing almost isn't it i think in that in that case because because i was aware of how ludicrous it was because i was a bit like i'm literally in the sea on my own i'm still doing it you know but i said i mean i must sound insane talking about that but I, i think probably a lot of people can recognize that and i didn't realize it had a name so it Yes. And you nailed it. I am the same way when I go surfing. I went surfing twice today. And in one of the sessions, I there were a couple other people out. I surfed way worse than later when I went and I was out by myself. And it, it, it absolutely happens. So I, you know what's funny, though? I never thought to use my little coping strategy out there. So I'm going to start to do that. I'm just going to tell myself these people know that I'm really good. And they're just going to assume if I don't make a wave, it was just an off thing and not just that I'm terrible. So I'm gonna start using that. I'm, I'll, I'm gonna, Thank I'm you. gonna do it as well. I'm gonna try and do it as well. Um, but yeah, because it's maddening, isn't it? Because it's like, yeah, for me, it's like just, just fucking enjoy it. Just enjoy what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Like it's 100%. especially, especially when you've got the once in a lifetime situation where you're on a, a surfing a beautiful wave in the sunshine in France on your own. Anyway, um, that's awesome. By the way, that you got to do that. That's yeah, sweet. honestly, I, got, I had it for three days. I was, it was bizarre. And there was like, um, there was a break that like a kilometer down the road, which had like a hundred people on it. 
and it, I just every day I, I kept going back and I just go I was going like, there's going to be people there today right and, and, was, and there was like one day there's like two guys out and then they as soon as I got in they got out because they'd obviously been there for a couple of hours it was uh-huh yeah it, it, I was that's like amazing. wow yeah it was really it was really really fun it was really great that's, I felt like that is awesome felt like I improved more in those three days than I have in years because you know just got loads of waves and could actually yep. um think about it rather than just you know stressing about actually getting away because it's so busy which is normally what it's like isn't it you know unless like like i say unless yes. you're unless you're like a don't have the what did you call it the stereotype threat the, the, you know if you don't have that and you can just get on with it anyway or you know you're really good and you don't give a fuck so yeah interesting right um all right final question and again it's one you'll have had a lot um but i'll ask it anyway is the cost of space exploration warranted given how many problems we have on our own planet? It's basically the Gil Scott Heron, um, white on the moon question, isn't it? So, yeah, exactly. It goes back to what we were talking about right at the very beginning, which is kind of the justification. And really, I don't see it as an either or, you know, uh, I don't see it as we either spend money on frivolous things like space exploration or real problems because I see it as actually a part of the solution to the real problems that we're constantly faced with. And the reason I see it that way is that it brings people to technical roles. It gets people excited about the idea that we can solve huge problems if we work together and we tackle them and that that things that seem impossible in the beginning actually are not impossible. Um, and I think that there are tangible demonstrated things that show that having a spaceflight program and the things that it bestows on us and teaches us about what we're capable of actually turn into having more people on board to solve these problems, having the framework for how to bring huge different diverse groups together to solve those problems um, and communicating about the things that we need to solve those problems and also the solutions themselves. Those are all things that we've learned how to do through the space program. Um, we've established the, the countries that are spacefaring have sort of established themselves as the preeminent technology um, incubators that are going to be the places where we look to when big problems need to be solved. And so it's, I don't necessarily see it as neither, or I actually see it as um, part of the solution set to those problems. I think that if we aren't exploring, if we aren't pushing forward, then we're moving backward. And that is the same for all fronts, whether it's tackling a problem that's ahead of us right now and in front of us right now, or if it's having the background and the expertise to solve and learn how to solve future problems. So, you know, a lot of people justify the space program through um, things like, oh, the science benefits, the technological, the technological spinoffs. Those are all really important too. But to me, the big one is what we just talked about is that it's just part of um, the bigger picture of bringing people to the table of how to do challenging things. And, um, you know, some people also singly justify it in it's the human condition to want to explore. But I recognize that's not necessarily going to be the answer for people that seek practical um, sort of answers like like this question. 
And so that's always my answer is that it's actually part of the solution, not opposed to those solutions. I found that interesting. Like you say, when we discussed it at the start of the conversation, you mentioned that, you know, I'll refer to it as like the trickle down benefits of it. Um, and, and the thought struck me at the time again, is that a metric that's actually used to measure the, um, the success I'm inverting the commas because that's the wrong word, but is that, is that something that's actively used to, to, to kind of measure, you know, in, in, in your community, is that something that people would say, yeah, well, actually this is how we can justify it. It is. Um, for example, one of the things that even kind of at the highest levels and the presidential level is often spoken about and recognized is the lack of people in different countries studying technology and science fields. Um, it's a big problem right now in the United States. We don't have as many people electing to go into these fields and people talk about the space program or, you know, the Green New Deal, these things where we're exploring new territory that people see as inspirational and people see as um, really exciting ways that they can use those skills, actually bringing people into those fields. And then those skills can be applied across the sector. Um, and that is definitely something that is a, a tangibly spoken of goal of having a space program. So there you go. That was me and Christina, and I hope you enjoyed it. Now, I say this all too often on the podcast, but this was one of those where afterwards I really did take a moment to appreciate how lucky I am to do what I do. I mean, that was just a great conversation. I got to chat to an astronaut. So there you go. My thanks to Christina for taking the time to do it, to Megan at NASA for organizing it. And yeah, hope you uh, got as much out of that one as I did. So housekeeping corner. Yeah, it's just me and you, die hard. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've been away in France for a few weeks. Slap bang in the middle of quarantine right now, actually, which gives me another reason to catch up on podcasts for one thing. Quite enjoying it, to be fair having an excuse to stay in and crack on with some work. But it was bloody worth it because I had a great trip to France, scored the waves and the weather, true. But really, it was down to the generosity of a few listeners who got in touch over the last couple of months with advice and help on places to go, good surf spots, where to eat, all the rest. Now, I don't want to get too soppy, but it really underlined how ace our little world is in the action sports community. And it meant me, Peg and Boog, had a properly ace trip. So big thanks to Aurelianne, Duncan, Jonathan and Cattell for their help and generosity in helping me make the best of that trip. Giving me hope actually that me and Toza will be able to get our long trailed and massively tardy book project off the ground, which I have now, I'm aware, been talking about for probably a year and, you know, have made no seeming progress. I mean, we have made progress. But that's the thing with self-imposed deadlines. They tend to wash right over your head in finest Douglas, Douglas Adams style. That said, since me and Owen got back from our holidays, we have been making some progress. The latest news is that we might have another sponsor on the horizon, which would mean we could bypass the whole Kickstarter thing and just get the book out there and sell it, which to be honest would be, I mean, Kickstarter would be cool, but it's the right faff in it. So, if, you know, if we can do that, we probably will. If it doesn't happen, then we will be back at the Kickstarter stage. Basically, I'll keep you posted. But if we do end up at Kickstarter, hopefully there's enough interested parties out there in the Looking Sideways community to actually get the thing off the ground. It'll happen, honestly. All right, that's it for me. 
for this week. Thanks as ever for listening to the show. I continue to be humbled and privileged by everybody getting in touch from around the world, telling me how much they're enjoying the show and listening to it. So if that's you, a big nice one coming your way. See ya. (laughs) 